Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Most of you are probably sick and tired of hearing Matt and I talk amongst each other. So today, we we're fortunate enough to bring in a guest. Sitting beside us here is Mr. Ken Zinger, CEO of CES. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. And Matt, thanks for having me here. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. So far, it's, let's kick things off real close. You're in Houston. It's been a while since we've seen each other. How has the trip been so far? It was good. It's been good. I came down primarily what sparked it as I've been trying to get down the last few months. And Gary Langford reached out to me in Midland and yeah. noted that there was a dinner coming to honor Harold Ham out in Midland. And I thought that was the perfect anchor for the trip. Yeah. So flew in, spent a bunch of time with uh, Vern from JCAM Catalyst on Monday night and then did the dinner on Tuesday night, went to the engineering meeting for AES in Midland on Tuesday during the day, did a little talk with the guys, met a bunch of the guys. That was nice. And then flew over here and just been spending time with Richard and, and James primarily working on some strategy stuff in CapEx. There you go. So obviously you've been just nonstop go, go, go. But if you find any free time when you're traveling down here in Texas or Houston, I mean, what's kind of the highlight? Like aside from all the work stuff, is there anything that kind of stands out that you just love about whether it's Houston or going to Texas? Is, is anything kind of pique your interest or something you go see or do or? You know what? I haven't done a lot in Houston, Texas. Last year when I came down for the board meeting in November, I brought my wife and my youngest daughter down with me and they stayed over at the mall and they had a great time shopping and visiting some of the local restaurants. So I like the food down here, I guess. Yeah. But as far as it seems like when I'm here, it's a pretty compressed schedule like this. It's hard to get down. So when I come... You know, last year we drove down to Corpus and got a view of the countryside, you know, kind of did a quick tour of El Campo. So that was nice to see. Yeah. I view Texas as one of my favorite places, I think, maybe a potential retirement place to have something going on. I like the political environment here. I like the people here, you know, the Southern way and the food's good. Yeah, right. No, it's been good. Obviously, myself being from back home, being here in Texas, there's a lot of similarities between Alberta to some degree. But at the end of the day, when you said retirement, that's interesting. I mean, are you a big fan of Galveston? I mean, is that beach just pique your interest or what? No, not even. I think (laughs) it would be more like uh, Houston. Like, yeah, I think I'm a city guy now. I grew up in a small town. Most of my family, all three of my sisters moved back to that small town later in life to where my mom and dad still live. But I just don't see myself going back to a small town again. So I hear you. And it would be seasonal. Yeah. yeah I wouldn't be here all year. <laughs> oh, yeah. so you don't need to be here for the summer? No, I think I would skip that one. <laughs> Summer's pretty nice in Canada. And, you know, we'll have kids, grandkids. So we'll always be going back to Canada. Yeah, um, of course. So if we spent a bit of time somewhere else, we'd probably travel the world a bit and spend some time in Texas. And then nice. the six, seven months a year in the summer, spent it back in Calgary. Yeah. No, I can identify with that. You mentioned it a little bit, but let's rewind. Talk about where you're from originally and then again, how you got into oil and gas because it's a very interesting yet unique story. Yeah, it's pretty accidental. So I grew up in Oliver, BC, which is a little town in Southern BC, almost on the US border by OMAC, Mm -hmm. kind of north of Spokane. 
and grew up on a farm. We had 10 acres of orchard, which was apples and cherries. So we kind of got that in grade, I think I was in grade one. So never really had any outside jobs going through school and high school, but worked on the orchard from a very young age. It made me good at backing up trailers and <laughs> driving tractors, I guess. Yeah. But I didn't love the work. You know, it was hard. Like anybody, I think when you're surrounded by that in your life, it's not something you either love it and you want to do it forever or you don't love it and you want to get out. And that's kind of yeah. where I was. So graduated high school and applied to UBC, got accepted, was planning to go to UBC in September of that year. Only I hadn't really applied for an arts program just because I couldn't think of anything else. I mean, at that time, living in that small town with media the way it was, all I knew about was doctors, lawyers, dentists, policemen, <laughs> right, firemen, yeah. no real jobs that I had in my mind and nothing I could think I wanted to aspire to do. Yeah. So had that as a default. And then that summer, I was involved in an accident where somebody passed away. I was mm -hmm. a passenger in a vehicle where one of the other passengers didn't make it. And that kind of shook me a bit. And uh, I wanted to just, you know, in like July, I think it was, I decided I just wanted to get out of town and go try something. And I had a bunch of older friends that were a couple of years older than me that had moved to Alberta. They were living in Mamio Beach, a little town, little I lake exactly. town. Yeah. My grandma actually, we have a family place on the lake at Mamio. I spent every summer as a kid in Mamio. So I well, know we exactly. were probably there at the same time. Yeah. I probably saw you. No kidding. So wow. in, in 85, I went to Mamio, me and a buddy drove out to Alberta, never been there, never seen an oil rig, didn't know what, I mean, the first job I applied for, I went to Shell when I was in Calgary to their head office to apply for a job on a rig. That's how out of okay. touch I was with reality. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sort of started to learn. And then we made our way up to Mamio and there was drilling rigs working around us. And so I had nothing better to do. We were just sitting there trying to figure out how to get a job. We went into NISCU and applied everywhere. We're waiting for calls. Yeah. And a buddy of mine told me, you know, if you can see a rig, go to it and just start hitting the tool push for a job. And sooner or later, somebody wouldn't show up for work and you'd get one. So <laughs> that's the strategy I took. And it worked like within about two weeks, I no walked kidding. out to a rig and got a job. What drilling contractor was it? Uh, it remember? was called Garnet Drilling. Garnet Drilling. They're probably not around anymore. No. They probably got bought up and then rebought again several times. I think at the time I got the job with them, they only had two or three rigs. They were a little one. I didn't stay there very long. I worked there. The rig ended up moving from Mamio to Red Earth. So I went up there, did a few hitches, decided I didn't like the two-in-one lifestyle of that at that age, mm -hmm. and started applying heavily at other contractors and got on with a company called Attico Drilling, yeah. which has became, I think, Sedco and eventually Precision, I believe. Yeah. But I worked at Attico for a long time. I think I worked there nine years altogether, so from okay. 85 to 94. Yeah. I appreciate the humility. You threw out dates. I wasn't even going to ask, but you yeah. just dated yourself, which is cool. You're very confident. So, you know, a lot of self-awareness there. I can appreciate that. You ended up getting on a rig. So did you have any family or anyone at the time? Probably wasn't annoying gas being from Oliver. Nothing. Like everybody yeah. that I knew, other than these couple of guys that were a couple of years older than us, you know, they had a fourplex that they let us stay in while we looked for work. Yeah. Everyone I knew went West. Like when you graduated in, in central BC, central Southern BC, that was the path, right? Everybody goes to Vancouver. Okay. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, growing up in Vern, it was, you know, I had a bunch of friends that went to Van and, you know, just struggled. And then there was a core group of us that went out East and yeah, same thing, got on rigs and well, I'm not going to say how that turned out for the other folks, but they worked well for us. And so how long did you work rigs? before you got onto the mud side? It was nine years. It was actually like seven. It was nine. The first two years was 85, 86 when there was a big downturn in oil. And so I worked that winter of 85 and then I got laid off in the spring, like spring breakup, like everybody does. But in the summer, they told me it was probably going to be so slow. There was no job to come back to. So yeah. I moved out to Vancouver for that summer. Expo 86 was going on. Yeah. Mm. 
Classic. Funny story there. I got a job at Expo 86. Like, they were hiring like tens of thousands of people. <laughs> sure, yeah. So I went and got a job and got a pass. And then I just never, ever showed up for work. <laughs> I was working at a dealership doing as a parts driver. But I got to use that pass the whole Expo 86. It was on, like, that's how bad the controls were. No one ever figured out no that way. it didn't even work there. No kidding. <laughs> and you got paid too? No, I never got oh, paid. Oh, you never got paid. But you got the pass. Got the, it go. was a thousand bucks or whatever for a multi-entry all summer pass. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's great. So tying it back, you know, obviously back then the things have evolved. And so I'm curious when you look back at the times when you were working rigs, what do you miss the most about that era specifically on the drilling side? Cause a lot's changed. Like the people have changed the way we handle people, obviously technology, but is there any part of that era that you miss that you feel like we're kind of moving away from on the, just the drilling and culture itself? I mean, it's probably a good thing, but the safety side has improved so much. It, mm. You know, it feels like it can feel like an encumbrance, but I mean, everybody needs to understand how much better that is than how it used to be. Like when I worked on rigs, we, you had a hard hat on, but zero hearing protection. And I'm paying for that today. I mean, my hearing's going probably earlier than it should have. Mm. And, you know, we worked, I had a, most days, I got lots of pictures of myself on a rig at that age with really? muscle shirt on and a pair of shorts and rubber boots standing on the floor, you know, tripping pipe. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, do you ever post those or tell stories about them or? I do not. No, no. man. You I do with my kids. I mean, my kids have seen them. And that's the most important, right? Yeah, it's get to see where dad started. So then you got on the mud side after that then? Or how did you transition into the mud world? Yeah, I mean, I've spent most of the time on the rigs. The last four or five years, I was working Derek as the industry started to correct. And I quite enjoyed playing around with the drilling fluid. So yeah. eventually I went into Calgary one day and same as when I got the job on the rig, I just decided that the mud man was a guy that came and left every day because it was <laughs> drive-by service, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Every, and he was a nice guy. He came and left. I asked him how he got his job and he said he was an older fellow, but he said, just go to Calgary and apply to all the mud companies. So okay. one time on days off, I drove down there had appointments set up at a bunch. And, you know, another lucky story is there was a company called Protect Drilling Fluids. It's a private company. I think they had 20 or 30 rigs going. So decent size, but not huge. Sure. They had 10 staff guys that were checking rigs. And I went in there and a guy named Brian Hartman was a personnel operations guy that would kind of ran all the operations in the field. Hit him up. Or I phoned him and he's like, no, nah, we're not hiring. We're not even looking for anyone. So yeah, it would just be a waste of your time. So, you know, if you want, give me a call when you're here. And if I got time, I'll squeeze you in. Yeah. So I went and did my other interviews at all the, you know, Halliburton, MI, Baker at that time. And then at lunchtime, I called like 1130. I called Brian and said, hey, any chance you got a minute? And he was like, well, let's go grab lunch and we'll grab a beer and have a BS. And maybe I can steer you to a job. I know a couple guys that might be looking. Hmm. So I went and met him for lunch. We had probably half a dozen beers <laughs> and talked for like three hours. And at the end of the thing, he's like, you know what? I'm just hiring you that you're in. No kidding. Um, yeah. The Calgary lunch special. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Some things haven't changed much. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you, you start off as a mud man working, doing drive-bys or? Yeah. Initially, I mean, they had a bunch, the 10 guys, they 10-ish guys, I can't remember if it was nine or 11, but somewhere around 10 guys they had, had all been there a long time. That company had been around for a while. And so they were all seasoned. They all had families. I was 
whatever I was, 25, 26, 27, something like that at that time. And I was still single and able to travel. So I became the go guy. I gave relief everywhere. Mm. Spent most of my time. I mean, eventually I found a home in uh, Red Earth working for BP Amico at that time. It was interesting work. They were doing, and I could use a computer because I was younger. The older guys couldn't figure it out. But techie kid. (laughs) We had Brookfield viscometers out at the rig at that time. And we were doing earth shattering stuff with these horizontals in heavy oil. Everything was about low end rheology and suspension and a little bit about adhesion to pipe from the tar sand yeah but it was all about hole cleaning and making better rop so we spent a lot of time and effort and sold a lot of drilling fluids and there we became we had a lot of success with a company called cs energy okay or cs resources and that success transferred the guys in town were able to move that around and we ended up working for everybody that was in their ac and BP Amico and a bunch of those guys. No kidding. And they were doing multi-leg tiebacks at that time too. They were playing with that technology where they wow. were they were trying to do like six legs off of one that all t- tied back into a vertical string. See, that's wild. Like a lot of that stuff, even today we were talking, we had an episode talking about U-turn wells and there's been a few operators down South here that have, you know, Chesapeake did them in, in the Eagleford, Shell did them, Matador, a company that recently did it. And they came out publicly saying, you know, we did this U-turn well. And I say all that to say is it's like, if you haven't been around, you'd think a lot of this stuff and even like multi-leg laterals is like, whoa, earth shattering. But the reality is, is like, we've been doing this stuff for a long time, which again, like I didn't know that that stuff was happening back then, but again, fascinating. And you know, now are they doing a lot of that still up in Canada? They don't do the multi-leg tiebacks that I know of, but they still do the heavy oil stuff. I mean, that's kind of our edge up there, right? Yeah. yeah, But those at that time, the multi-leg stuff, they were trying to off a single well, they were trying to do the pitchfork, right? So you were getting some 90 degree turns anyway in there. Wow. At the beginning of the well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So you work there, you do well, you're the go-to guy, you probably got to see and do a lot. There came a point, and I don't know if you had transitioned to another company, I think you'd worked for New Park at some point? or So that came after. So I worked in the field from like 94 to 98, 99, something like that. Okay. And then during that time, ProTech grew a lot. We started to be up in that 60, 70 rig kind of number. Nice. And we were getting some attention. And because I had been on the heavy oil stuff, and the heavy oil stuff was what we excelled in and were doing really well in, they decided to bring me into town to help with programming. Oh, yeah. And so I got brought in for a tech service role. And it was just right at the same, they were on a hiring spree. It was right at the same time that Tom Simons, our former CEO, got brought in in a sales role Uh, from MI. Gotcha, gotcha. And so that's how we started working together. And I worked in tech services programming, did a little bit of ops for maybe three months. And then I just got tired of watching Simons go to all the golf games (laughs) and drink beer all night. Yeah, yeah. I want that job. Yeah, I can play hockey. (laughs) (laughs) So I pushed Bob and Neil and they gave me the opportunity that they don't some clear criteria I had to meet, but I pushed them and they let me go into sales. And Tom and I had a really good run there for a lot of years. No kidding. We ended up spending... I think I was only at in town for about a year when New Park came in and bought ProTech. Ah. And that's how we ended up at New Park. So New Park brought ProTech, I think, in 98. And Tom and I sort of became the lead sales guys there. We had most of the sales with New Park in Canada. And Bob, the former owner of ProTech, was running the show. And then after a couple of years, I don't know what happened, but they let go of Bob. Okay. And at the same time, the CEO of New Park at that time came into town and came into Calgary and sat us down, us two young bucks down, and explained to us that we were getting paid on commission at New Park and that they were paying us too much money. And (laughs) there were some executives in Houston that weren't making as much as us. 
So therefore, they were pulling the commission program. And so I think that was part of the reason Bob left, but I've never asked Bob if that was it. No kidding. But he had a pretty tried and true method that worked in Canada and they wanted to change it. He went away, they changed it. Tom and I got out of that meeting and looked at each other and we're like, well, that's not good. <laughs> that's not going to fly for a couple salesmen to tell us to, you're being too successful. So we're going to take some of your money. Yes. Like, okay. Yeah. But they told us not to worry. Like right, he right. told us specifically that they were going to up our salary a little bit and that they bonus us every year. And don't worry, we'll take care of you guys. We're not going to let you go too low. Yeah. But we're not going to define a structure. You just got to trust us. Wow. Which famous last trust words. in the oil yeah. field. Yeah. No kidding. So at that point, I would imagine some conversations started about, hey, maybe we should do this thing on our own. Is that how that kind of get, got going? Yeah. I, I get asked that a bit about why we started or how we came up with the concept to go into business. And it was, I don't know how Tom would explain it, but for me personally, it was completely accidental and kind of forced by this opportunity. Yeah. I mean, my first response was, I'm going to go look for a job somewhere else. Sure. But it was like April of 2001 when that happened and Tom and I both had wives that were pregnant at that time so they were about six months into their pregnancies they'd both gotten pregnant at roughly the same time gotcha. and we didn't want to quit New Park like rush out and do that before the babies were born because of healthcare and potential issues right so if you go somewhere new, you generally don't get on the benefits program. So anyways, we decided we were going to tough it out and hang at New Park until June, July of that year so that we could be sure the babies were healthy. And then during those yeah. three months, we just started talking about options all the time. And yeah. I think it was Tom, I'm sure it was Tom who said, why don't we just start our own freaking company? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's actually not a bad idea. Right. Yeah, we can do this. And so, I mean, talk about like, how was that conversation going back to the family being like, hey, look, like, I think we're doing this. Because I mean, that's always the hurdle, right? Is like everyone wants to aspire to be an entrepreneur and a businessman, which at the time, I guess for you, it was like an idea that you thought, well, okay, that makes sense. You know, talk about that because I always find that interesting and you guys are still together and have a family, which again is amazing in itself being in the oil field. Yeah. So again, go back and like, how did you sort of relay that to your wife and the family? My wife's been supportive always, but her mom and dad, my mom and dad, everybody thought we were absolutely nut bar because <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the time we were making really good. I think, you know, I recall making you know, in the two fifty, three hundred thousand dollar a year kind of range at New Park. If I had stayed there, depending what bonus I trusted them to pay, yeah. Um, Which so back was, then, that's like a million bucks now. Yeah, for a guy with no university education, and it was a good deal. Like we no had a good gig going. <laughs> you know, in my head, what I came up with was why not? I thought the customer doesn't work with me because we're at New Park. I mean, they've trusted us from Pro. Maybe they worked with us because we were ProTech at one time, but sure. since we had become New Park, the relationship had become myself and the customer, not New Park and the customer. Yeah. And so I think they overplayed their hand way too early because of that. And they overestimated how much influence they were having on the business in a brand mm. new geography where they'd never been before, where they were perceived right. as an outsider. I mean, they had everything working against them. So I thought, you know, I have enough relationships, even if I brought half the work that I had and Tom brought half the work he had, we could Your manage business. this. We'd have revenue, right? Yeah. And then the other thought of it was we had been very successful and... If we did this for a year and it didn't work out, we just shut it down and I can get a job. Like I can, right. for sure, I'll get on somewhere. Yeah. So we just dove in. We waited till the babies were born. I think it was two weeks after Grace was born, his oldest daughter. We went in and resigned together, took three months off as a cool down period. And then we fired up in September. No kidding. And we fired up, you know, another coincidence, but we fired up September, I think it was September 1st, exactly, 2001. 
And then 911 happens like two weeks later or yeah. 10 days later. Jeez. Did that impact? I mean, obviously it was a huge deficit. I was in elementary school at the time, I remember, or at high school. But I mean, did it impact the oil field at all much? Not, I don't, not a bunch. There was a bunch of fear around it. Like for a month, you didn't really know what was going to happen, right? Yeah. Um, and even the morning that it happened, I can still remember that. And, you know, not knowing what was going on, not understanding why it was happening, put a lot of panic into a lot of people. So there was sure. rumors about shutdowns and security issues and, you know, travel falling off there by demand going down and oil prices going down. So I'm sure the markets were rattled for a bit there, but right. it did resolve itself pretty quickly. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I guess the question I have when you have, I mean, the one thing you have when you're like sort of affiliated is you've got all the people and the functions and all that, but you've been in a sales role for a while. You probably still remember how to run mud or, you know, y'all have a pretty good idea of that. And then you say, okay, we're going to do this. Are you like, Selling a job and then being like, okay, now I'm going to drive to the rig and go run the job. And then was it one of those transitions where you're like, okay, back to the field and like, I got to go meet with a customer in town and then I need to go back out and, you know, get a report out. Like you're just wearing 30 hats. Well, much like we had relationships with our customers, we had relationships with our field guys. I mean, I worked with those guys side by side when I was in the field. So a lot of trust there. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the guys who's still with us today, a guy named Dave Unger and another guy named Joe Shusloff. Yeah. I mean, both of them still check mud for us today. They were like, Joe came a little bit later from MI, but Dave, I think was employee two or three. And he still works for, I worked with him on rigs for, I don't know, four or five years. I used to live with him or live in a fourplex where he was in the fourplex next to me back when we both worked on rigs. I remember Dave now. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Huh. Really good guy. I didn't realize he was still around. That's so great. Pretty easy to put a team together really quickly, which I, that's like back of my mind. I'm like, if I just decided to go and start a business, how do I do all the work while I'm selling and all that kind of thing? And I guess if you know everybody right away, you probably thought about it a little in the months leading up to it anyways. Yeah, I mean, we had a good deal with our wholesaler that enabled this as well. I mean, they yeah. didn't make us pay him for, they carried inventory, they didn't make us pay for it until we got paid. So we worked under that deal for like the whole five years we were private basically. Wow. Because we became a big player pretty quickly. I think that first winter we had 20 rigs going. No Fantastic. Okay. Took off really fast. There's a lot of consultants available. So we were able to get the field side of it, we were able to largely manage. But Tom, you know, did go out to the field at one point to check something because he had, I think it was during going into spring, but we had, we couldn't get a consultant and, you know, one of us had to go and it was my customer. So I'm like, well, I got to stay in town and talk to the customer. You yes. got to beat it, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so That's he went crazy. out and checked a bit, but I mean, in startup for that, it was a big risk. I mean, I had a house that was paid for and I had, cause you know, we'd been working a long time by then and my wife had a car, I had a car, we had savings and we sold everything. We sold mm. the house, moved into a rental house, sold both vehicles. So there's a third guy involved named Dave Rosenthal, who was our operations manager at New Park and ProTech before that. You know, I was pretty overconfident in my abilities on the programming <laughs> side. Tom was less overconfident, so he insisted we had to bring Dave. I would say that at the time, I was more aligned with just doing the two of us, but he really felt more comfortable if we had Dave there, which turned out to be smart because it took off so fast. Mm. We needed someone right away anyhow. Mm. Yeah. The three of us sold everything we had. Mm. Put it all into a kitty. And then out of that, we leased three Ford F-150 Super Cruise. Okay. And that's what we had. And I had one, Tom had one, and Dave had one. And that's what we had for vehicles. And then we just used consultants at first. But by, I think, Christmas, we were having to bring on staff. We were subleasing space from a customer of ours. Actually, a consulting firm gave us a few offices. Wow. So we were able to use their receptionist. But we brought in Brent Bailey's, another guy that came in very early. He's still with us. He's yeah. our operations soup. 
I think he was, I can't remember if he was two, three, or four, but those guys all roughly came in that first winter in wow. 01, 02. No kidding. I didn't realize Brent was like original from back in the day. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I think Brent, Joe, you know, Jason Gray's been yeah. the CES group a long time. He was with Zandy's group, the CFS Fluids company that we merged with in 06 to go public. Yeah. But we got a lot of longtime employees in Canada that have been there almost from the beginning. Wow. But it was a big, we started digging into savings pretty quickly there to support the, the ongoing business, even though we didn't have to take care of working capital. Yeah. But it still drained us. We got really low before we started going up. <laughs> right. But no, I think it's a testament just to the character and the level of risk that you're willing to take. And as an entrepreneur, a business owner, someone to go off on your own, like you need that sense of like nuttiness. It's like we're putting everything on the line because it's sink or swim. And obviously you guys have swam and and then some. And I like how you talk about having a team that you built and a lot of the people that have stayed and are now still here. Because I think that's a testament to the culture and really what sets us apart. But I want to ask you is, you know, through the years leading up to where we're at now, we've grown substantially. We've got you know, more employees that I don't know that I do know now, but for all good reasons. But how would you differentiate us if someone wasn't familiar with either working with us or as a customer, but how would you describe the biggest differentiator between us and our competitors or even other oil field service companies? Well, I think we've been very conscious in our effort to not have middle management and not to say we have none, but we keep it to a minimum and there's definitely not multiple layers. Mm. So we try and enable people to be able to do what's right because you know, when I was in sales, I was given that freedom to set pricing, to help influence a program or influence properties that were going to be run on a program, to figure out how much to spend on which customers, which ones were worth, even if we didn't have revenue being generated by them, you know, is there a chance that we could have and should we be doing lunches and coffees with them or should we not be? Mm. And, you know, it's a simplistic way of looking at it, but we've kept that culture. I mean, we have good people. You can tell, I mean... I think I've been a, a good judge of character, and I think Tom was a very good judge of character right from the beginning of it all. And we've made mistakes, you know, no question. We've had people come into the organization that we've had to remove later, but we've tried to and just enable people, be honest with them. And I think that culture carries down through the levels. And yeah. if you don't let people, you know, learn and make mistakes for themselves, then they're never going to learn. You can't just bring micromanage and control people. So yeah. I think that filters down to every level in the company. I mean, there has to be controls at some point, but for the most part, people have a lot of freedom in this place. And I think that gives them confidence and makes everybody more comfortable working there. Yeah. I wanted to share there, you know, I came from a fairly large service company and the bureaucracy was tough, but we were working on these big projects and I was doing one for a big operator in Russia. They just set the platform. I'd done their basis of design for the whole, you know, big contract. And I went over there and they said, could you come back every other month and hold us accountable to what you think we need to do to protect the reservoir? And, um, you know, I said, sure, that like, that sounds like it. And they were like, and maybe the other rigs we have out here, maybe you could tell us what we're doing wrong. It's like, this is like, perfect. Uh, you know, like what an ideal situation. And I came back and told my boss like, Hey, exciting opportunity. He said, well, do you think you could get the customer to pay you for your flight? Because I'm afraid to ask my boss. And I was like, okay, I'm going to Russia like this. I'm not trying to go to Norway, you know, like, come on. And I said, why don't you ask him? You know, it was just one of those. So I get to a, I joined AES months later and Baxter says, you need to go to Midland. Addie's going to be in Midland. You need to meet her. You need to meet everybody. Like just book flight and go. And so I asked James, okay, how do I get authorization for a flight? And how do I do all these things to make sure it's okay? And James just looks at me and he goes, man, I don't even know why you're asking me these questions. He goes, we hired you because we trust you. Like go to Southwest.com. Like, <laughs> and it was one of those, like, there was like a six month hangover where I was like, wow, this place is so different. 
And then you look around and see how all of the employees feel so empowered. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of when you get bigger, there's like risk management and that sort of thing. But you start taking away too much freedom from people and they lose that passion and lose that ability to really take care of their customers. So that's just always that first conversation when I joined AES was like, this place is different. Yeah, I would. I mean, I'm sitting here smiling. You can't see that because this isn't videotape. You know, that kind of stuff from big companies just makes me shake my head. When, you know, a CEO in Houston flying to Calgary to take commissions away from the guys that are driving in the business in Calgary, like happened to us, mm-hmm. is just an extreme waste of a CEO's time. And how can you not have the foresight to see the damage that might do? Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, when I hire a sales guy, when they come from a bigger company, their first questions are always, you know, what can I charge? And I give them the ranges. Like, here's mm-hmm. sort of, you know, it's a pretty tight range. These are the margins we need to make. So figure out the mix on the well, and you can move prices around a little bit based on the sensitivity of the customer on individual products. But we got to end up at this spot and, you know, go to it. And guys would come to me and I said, okay, if I take oh, dudes lunches with this guy, or if I go on a fishing trip for the afternoon with this guy, we hired you to allocate millions of dollars every month for us. You're deciding how to award pricing. Why would I care if you're spending $500 on a fishing trip for an afternoon? Like, yeah. you know, if it expense account on the sales side is the end check and balance, right? When I read through those, if I see something that I don't agree with that I have an issue with, I'll go talk to them and try and understand why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I mean, we're trusting people to make bigger decisions than where they're having lunch and who they're having it with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, again, I think it comes down to allowing your people to create value where they see fit, right? Instead of having to, and it's one thing too, is, is it's not for everyone. A lot of people have to be told what to do and you have to hold their hand through things. And again, I think certain roles have a degree of that, but for the most part, you know, when it comes to sales and account management and stuff like that, it's, you know, you blaze your own trail. And as long as you're creating value for the company and you have a lot of wiggle room to do so, which again, I can appreciate. I'm kind of like the kid who, if I see a butterfly or something exciting, I'm all over the place, but it allows me to like do my job at the level of freedom and creativity to do things. And so again, I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to thrive in this type of environment. And so what kind of leads me to my next question, is this something that you is just like inherent in you to sort of lead that way? Or did you have someone influential in your career that you worked under that said like, this is actually the right recipe? I mean, talk about where that comes from, because it's fairly unique. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I think it's just something that I appreciated when I did the job. And so I've tried to extend that opportunity to other people. I think most of the people that we hire in this organization are entrepreneurial at heart, right? Like I think they come here and they're all, we've tried to be very selective about who we hire and who we keep working here. But I think everybody's pretty entrepreneurial and everybody's got good character. You can see that when you walk around this office, you can see it in Calgary. You can see it when you go to the Midland engineering meetings. I mean, accountable people who have good character. And I think if you're born that way with a solid character, that carries through to every aspect of your life. And if you have honest people, you have nothing to worry about. Yeah, that's a great point. Pivoting the conversation just a little bit, anyone who's been in oil and gas for any length of time understands the volatility that comes with being in the oil field. And naturally that can deter people. But as a company, it's been fun to be a part of since 09, I believe. Obviously we've absorbed and gone through a lot of these cycles, but we've remained so resilient. And I know down here, after every downturn, we've actually managed to capture quite a bit of market share. And so as a leader, how do you maintain that level of resilience, especially in an industry that's so volatile? Because we've actually, again, we've never really taken a step back and then stayed back. We've always marched forward and have grown. I mean, how do you remain resilient? Like what's the secret sauce to that? 
Well, I think it's strong management, like not just executive management. I mean, management across the board in those downturns as you're approaching one, like 2020 was pretty telegraphed, right? You could tell in February, March what was coming mm-hmm. and it was going to be pretty devastating. So it's sitting down quickly and understanding who you can afford to keep. And I guess that's the best way to put it, who you can afford to keep because you're going to have so much money and so much revenue and so much earnings that you can spend on SG&A. So the first step you have to take is how many people can we keep? And in conjunction with that, that's a function of looking at all of our costs. You know, you shut down everything you can that's uh, optional cost, and then you look at what's left, and then you decide how many people you can keep, and you do your best to keep the key people. You know, sometimes that means a reduction in salary. We've done that a couple times because that saves a few more jobs. And ideally, you want to save everybody, but frank reality of it all is, is you can't, unless you have a crystal ball that says this is only going to last six months. But, you know, when you have no idea the duration you have to endure, you have to be very uh, purposeful in how you handle that crisis that you're going into. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done a good job with that, I think, in 09 and again in 15, 14, 15. And finally, in 2020, they've all been devastating to the industry and those are the ones that have led us to have to make cuts but i believe we did the most responsible things we could in those i mean i'm sure we made mistakes from time to time but we did our best in terrible circumstances like honestly the worst part of the job like i've never wanted to quit my job so bad as 2020 when we were going through that i mean we'd been through so much already and when we had to do it again it's just like the worst days ever having to come into the office with that being your goal for the day figuring out how to carry forward i think i mean one of the things i've admired about the culture even in the midst of that is talking to a few guys who you know were part of those cuts and when things came back they came back with no bitterness. I mean, look, it hurts. I've been involved with layoffs at other companies and seeing how painful that is for everyone, let alone like you have survival's guilt if you didn't get let go. And then if you do get let go, you want some reason why, even if it's just the numbers don't work. Yeah. And the fact that I saw a lot of responses to that in fairly, I will say it, toxic cultures where it's like, screw those guys. I'm going to get mine. I'm never coming back, you know? Yeah. And what I saw was hey, look, you know, we didn't have you for six months, but we're so thrilled that you're back and that you waited for us because, or that you were open to joining us again because this is just bad times, but thankfully they're over and like, we still value and appreciate you. And somebody says, you know what? I value and appreciate the opportunity I had and I'm willing to come back. You just don't see that either. And so that was one of the kind of positive things I saw as we recovered was how many people we got to welcome back who were thrilled to be there and we were thrilled to have them. That meant a lot to me, and I never saw that at other organizations. Yeah, we definitely take, like I've said, it's the worst days that I've had as a manager have been those years when we've had to go through that. We've learned from each of them, and the key to that, once again, to preventing that is to not overhire during the good times. So I think people that come here also notice a workload that's probably different than an MI or a, a Halliburton or a bigger company. And there's a lot more responsibility, and there's a lot more expectation for performance because we try not to overhire so that when we go through these downturns, we don't, like most of them, unless it's catastrophic, we haven't had to, we've gone through slowdowns, and we just cut back on expenses and spending and keep all the people 100%. Mm-hmm. And we do that by not overhiring during the good times. So, you know, I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. That's where it all starts. And having a whole bunch of middlemen management that, you know, doesn't necessarily contribute to, they're just watching people. They're not actually contributing mm-hmm. to income or revenue. That's a waste of money, in my opinion. That's why we don't hire them. We try and get by and we expect a little more from everybody. I think we compensate well to everybody for giving us that. And we try and be accommodating in all parts of the business with days off and holidays and, you know, just generally being good to people in order to get more out of them so that once again, when it slows down, we don't have to make so many hard decisions. I mean, those 2020 was 
tough. We were just getting going again in 19. We had such a great year and we were so, you know, that first quarter of 2020 was such a, we were growing like crazy and you could see it coming. And then all of a sudden, boom, we had to go back through that again. No kidding. So one thing, and this is something I've often thought about is, you know, I consider us a large company now. I mean, we've grown is you've seen a lot of companies, whether it be the competitors or large oil field service companies or any large companies is as they grow, they become the term, you know, they become more corporate. And by that, I mean, like for us, we live and die by cutting sacks at the hopper. Like that is the bloodline. Like that's where it comes from. But then there's so much more to it. And so as companies grow, they focus a lot. I say they focus a lot less is there's so much more emphasis on the internal components to the business versus staying externally focused on remembering, like if it wasn't for these customers, you know, we wouldn't be here today. And so how do you maintain sort of that small, you know, family feel of like the customer comes first, you know, everything else is like just to support the customer verse instead of like getting bogged down with like HR stuff and like all the internal movements. Cause I think that's where a lot of people, and not to say we've experienced that, but hearing it from other people who've been with companies, it's like, oh, once this person bought us out or once we became public, it was all just about internal stuff where like the customer actually came second and third. Like, how do you steer it to avoid that so we can sustain what we've been doing and grow even more? I've said it a million times. We're a sales organization. You know, we're run by salesmen. Tom and I weren't chemists and we weren't engineers. We're right. both sales guys that had some practical experience. And that's the philosophy we brought to the company. And I think when I talk about everybody here being entrepreneurial or a large percentage of people here, that leads directly to that. I mean, without the customer, we don't have any revenue. Without the sales force, we don't have any revenue. We don't have as important as field engineers are and operations people. Without the sales, we don't have anything for them to take care of. So it all starts with sales and that all starts with taking care of the customer. And sometimes, you know, we've gone through episodes in the past over the past 10 years, 15 years where we've had to make sacrifices to customers, you know, giving them discounts or doing extra business with them in order to make up for mistakes that we've owned up to and been a part of. So, you know, fortunately they haven't been many, but they've happened like with anybody and you've got to be humble and go back and realize you need those guys as much as it'd be easier just to walk away and do nothing about it and take what you've already made, which I think the majors do a lot. Mm -hmm. We try to never burn a bridge and not to say we've never burned a bridge, but we do everything we can to not burn a bridge. Yeah. And that just takes some sacrifice and hat in hand sort of attitude. That's what we do. Yeah. No, I love that. And that was one of the things that attracted me right out of the gate. And I'll tell just a short story is like, I went to school with Chad Hayden, which obviously, you know, very well. And, you know, I remember I was delivering furniture after I graduated from SAIT and he calls me up and he says, Hey, you know, can you come in for an interview? And I think that night I sent him my resume. Well, anyway, I come in do the interview with you. I think it was you and Palm actually sitting in one of your guys' office, if I remember correctly. But it reminded me very much of my dad because my dad, while he was hardworking, he owned his own business, but he was such a salesman. He was like all about customer service and would do anything for the customer. And that same philosophy and mindset, I saw that in you and Tom. And I was like, man, I would love to work for this company. And now I'm still here today. But I think being led by salesmen is something that's very unique because there's not a lot now being in the industry for a long time. I've met a lot of people in executive management and there's not too many that have a similar background. Again, I think that's also a differentiator is, is just the leaders that we have within the company, which again, I admire and I think is awesome. But when it comes to, so kind of pivoting from that, but like coming from oil and gas, there's a global push towards reducing our dependency on fossil fuels. So what would you say to someone who's younger and who's trying to figure out their path? What would be a sort of your position on why someone should be willing to consider oil and gas and 
why it's important that oil and gas sticks around for a long time. Because that's we are an oil and gas service company for the most part and would hope that we can continue to attract talent for decades to come. Yeah, I think the company currently in its current state is an oil and gas only company, almost. I mean, we do some outside stuff with pharmaceuticals. For the most part, we're oil and gas. We generate good returns. We're paying down debt right now. We're doing some share buybacks right now. But we're going to get that down to a a nice low level, and we're going to be in a position to start diversifying. And we're doing that not because we're worried about the industry we're in going away in the next 25 years, but because we're kind of leaders in everything we do, and we've got no room to grow. I mean, the question I get asked by analysts all the time is, how are you going to grow this thing beyond where you are? Right. And you try and tell them that we just doubled the company in the last year and a half. It's like, give us a minute to catch our breath. <laughs> yeah. And we did that by, you know, we had to spend a lot of debt in order to get the working capital up, right? Because every time we grow, that comes with a working capital cost. So right. we've got to take advantage of where we are to pay down that debt. But when we get that debt back down, we need to find the next market we're going to get into. You know, currently the Canadian mud division has been number one in Canada forever and like 10 years or whatever it's been. We have a hard time. We kind of bounce around between 30 and 40% of market share. It just goes up and down and up. Every time we get to 40, it gets hammered back down. <laughs> Customers don't want one choice on stuff. Yeah. Pure Cam is tied for number one in Canada with Production Chem, with Baker and Champion. JCAM is roughly like Champion's probably the biggest, but we think JCAM's probably number two now in North American land. AES is tied for number one in their market. So valid question. Like, how do you keep growing? And I keep telling them the same thing. We'll keep doing what we do. And right. we've still got room to grow. Maybe Canadian MUDs a little more limited, but the other divisions all have room to grow. So we'll continue. Maybe it won't be doubling every year and a half, or absolutely it won't be doubling every year and a half, but it will be a continued march forward with the core business. But what that core business does allow us is returns to shareholders as well as opportunities to expand the market. So we're looking at a couple initiatives right now. One of them isn't even out of oil and gas. It's diversification internationally across markets to enter something new that we're not currently playing in. Mm. The other one is outside of oil and gas. Those would be the two major ones that we're focused on right now. And we're constantly, you know, we had a guy named Jonah in the office whose only job was to identify a way to take our current infrastructure and get into a different end market. Right. We weren't successful in that. We looked at it. We turned over a lot of rocks. I mean, we can find a way to do it. The problem is margins aren't the same as what they are in oil and gas because there's no service aspect. So Uh, it's low single digit kind of production manufacturing margins, which would have hurt our stock, not helped it, even though it was diversification. So we're going to continue to push on that. And when we see opportunities like this one we're investigating right now that are outside of our industry, if our chemicals facilities can help us and if our current footprint can help us, it'll probably be getting more vertically integrated even yet, but into some sort of a chemistry that's got another end market around it as well. That's sort of the line of thinking we're on, but I think we're open to almost anything. I mean, we got to stay within our core competency so we can't go take a wild swing and start owning baseball teams or something, but (laughs) we'll find something, you know, we're going to do some strategy sessions with the group and we're going to keep looking. We've got time, you know, really with our multiple, you know, our multiple drives me nuts. I look back and in 2014, we were doing a billion dollars in revenue and 180 million in earnings Mm. and we were trading at 12 bucks. Today we're doing or over double the revenue and almost double the earnings and we're trading at 360 and you know a month ago we were trading at 260. <laughs> like that's how out of favor oil and gas has fallen. So anything we can do to diversify will only help the share price, but I also think that over time the earnings we're having and our ability to return to shareholders and the growth we'll get from having that capital in our pocket yeah. will make that multiple come up and then as that multiple comes up and it gives you flexibility to start doing some acquisitions. Yeah. I mean we've been kind of 
between our debt and our multiple, you know, it hasn't been a great opportunity. I keep asking why we're not buying competitors and it's yeah. like, well, we're, you know, how do you buy them when every private company out there wants more of a multiple on their earnings than we have? Like nothing's accretive. Like that's why we were able to acquire so much from sort of 2008 until 2014. We had a great multiple. Yeah. And no matter what we bought, we were getting doubly accretive on it. Mm. You know, we were buying things for four and five times and while we were trading at 10 and 11 times. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the color on that. I mean, for so long, I remember when I got transferred into the U.S. in 2010 to work in our Pennsylvania office, it was just like growth through acquisition. Like I felt like every other year was like this bolt on and we're like growing. It was crazy. And then, yeah, lately to your point, and I appreciate kind of the context behind there because I've often wondered like why like we grew through acquisition. That was kind of our motto. And then all of a sudden we, you know, obviously market conditions dictate some of that. But I was like kind of waiting for that next like release of like, when are we going to announce what we made this big acquisition or something? And uh, but to your point, like it's fascinating and I admire our efforts to grow and to diversify because again, it's like the motto has always been is like, if we're not growing in full throttle, like we're dying. And so it's like, we need to keep pushing the boundaries, pushing the boundaries. And for someone that's been here for a while, like I'm so anxious to kind of see what our next move is because it's been a minute. And again, no fault of anybody's. It's a lot of that's the market, but for those out there that have been with the company, you know, there's going to be other and greater opportunities because obviously we get tied down with the same day to day. And it's like, well, where am I going next? Because here, and to your point, like we don't have that many layers of management. So it's not like, okay, in a year I can move it to this management. And then maybe in the following year I can move to this. But the reality is, is like we're going to expand into possibly other markets. There's going to be great opportunities. And I think here is if you work hard and you bring a level of creativity, enthusiasm, and attitude and treat people well, like the opportunities are endless. And so with that entrepreneurial spirit that we do have, someone's going to come up with some crazy market or find some market that's like, hey, we have all these strengths that could do well in this and let's go for it. If it makes business sense and makes money, then hey, why not? So it's exciting. I think that, you know, the acquisitions we did even back then were never... They were never designed to get bigger in a market we were already in. Right. If I can put it that way, like when we did the acquisitions, they were strategic. You know, JCAM, we bought because of the manufacturing facility. They had a retail business. They got us into retail production chem in the US, but we had already started the retail business in Canada and we needed manufacturing. We needed to be basic in order to compete with the majors. You just can't. I mean, in today's market, so much different than what it was back in 2001 when we started. I mean, back then, other than BP Amico and Shell, nobody had a procurement department. Yeah. Nobody was watching over customers. Customers used who thought they thought could get the best result, period. And that's how you got their trust. You showed them good results. Today, you can lose a bid over a bag of sawdust price. Like, it's just <laughs> crazy how micromanaging some of these procurement departments have become over the drilling side. So. Yeah. We were strategic in our acquisitions. The FMI acquisition that we did in 08-09 was strategic in both the way that, you know, we bought it at a time that they were coming out of a very bad year, which made the purchase price lower. We paid for future earnings. We did a deal with them where they could earn more if they could bring it back. And of course they did and brought it back even bigger. But it was to enter a market. I'd been flying all over the U.S. for a couple of years trying to build a market. I sat, I mean, we sold some work to Chesapeake in the Marcellus. Yeah. And I actually sat on the rig with Chris Symbolisti, who was our number one employee in Canada. Yeah. Him and I together, actually, I sold it and then flew him down and we ran the job. And it went really good. It was a water-based job on a Marcellus horizontal. 
But we ended up getting, I think we did half a dozen wells for them. And then at the end of the day, they ended up going with FMI and replacing us because you guys were using synthetic invert and it was just cookie cutter. There was never an issue, never a tight hole, never a tight trip. It was just, it went better. Our cost less on the mud side, but overall well costs weren't as predictable because you'd, sometimes you'd have to add half a day of reaming. Um, so we learned from that. And the other thing I learned through all that is that American customers, just like Canadian customers, want to use American people. So mm-hmm. me flying around talking to guys no matter how much work I did or how much credibility I tried to create it wasn't the same as having a local person doing that right so it was entry to market we bought FMI we got a footprint we had bought a company in Oklahoma at that time FMI got us into the Marcellus into Texas in a small way and then we just did what we do which is gave Jim Sherman and then eventually Richard Baxter the freedom to run the division as it needs to be run yeah like in every way with safety hiring procurement I mean always with conversation capex always with conversation and always with the team agreeing the team of management executive management the you know Richard today Richard Baxter Vern Disney myself and Tony I mean nothing happens here on a big scale level without all of us talking about it if there's a safety incident we're on a phone talking about it if there's a capex request we're on the phone talking about it and we're competing for those opportunities you know we're running economics on them to see what's the most first of all who has the best economic result from it but second of all who actually needs it like rather than just focusing on the dollars and cents that can be earned sometimes we focus on the strategic advantage and you know Pecos is a great example of that you know maybe it does have economic return but strategically I mean it's hugely important just like Corpus Christi was those were big expenditures but we needed them in order to be credible in the market and it's paid huge dividends in our market share Canada, we built the PureCam facility. I think that was in Grand Prairie. I think that was a $20 million touch, but we needed it to be credible in Northern Alberta. And we've grown off that. And our market share up there is 10 times what it was back then. I don't know the exact number, but we were scratching the surface back then. And now we're probably the biggest guys up there. But you just have to put the assets in the right place. You have to talk as a group and you have to give everybody the freedom to make the decisions that are best in their market. I'm not going to try and pretend that I know more about the Texas market than Richard Baxter or James Strickland or either of you guys. Sure. Yeah. No, it's a testament to the leadership. And a question I often get, and even from customers, and I'm sure you've probably had to answer this question tons over time, is what is the strategic play behind not branding us as a single entity? It's been a struggle. So the strategic play is the decentralized model and the fact that, you know, we bought these very successful local businesses and we want them to be recognized as such. The stigma came, I think, largely because back in 09, we were called Canadian Energy Services. Yeah. And so we didn't want to be in the U.S. with Canadian Energy Services <laughs> as our as our headline name. So we let a we created AES, which was at the time was an acronym for American Energy Services, was the simplicity of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we bought JCAM and Catalyst, they had huge local brand recognition. So rather than sacrifice that, we let them build off it. We've been trying to get more. I've been trying to push in the last year and a half on Richard and Vern to get more integrated on the corporate name and start using that on sponsorship stuff. We changed the corporate name to CES Energy Solutions. doesn't stand for anything now. It's just CES. You know, we all know where it comes from, yeah. but that doesn't have to be the headline name. Sure. And we're trying to get more corporate branding where we still are AES, but it says a division of CES and try and get that CES name out there. There may be a point in the future where we look at that again and come up with one name, but sure. it's hard to argue the results we've had by having separates. Yeah. And you know how it goes. Like if you're in the same market, within the same market in Canada, we all CES and PureCam work out of the same in our Canadian 
Energy Services. CES MUD works at the same office as PureChem. Right. And we have the two names, even though we're all integrated and working together. But if you have an issue at a rig, that can spill over into the production chemical side. Or if they have a problem at a wellhead, that can spill over into the drilling fluid side. So having that little bit of separation in name and corporate structure and P&L statement at least gives you some fight to not let customers tie that all together. Yeah. No, because you hear about that. I mean, you look at the majors, the Halliburton's and the Slumberjays, they're all one unit. But which again, I get it. But for us, I can appreciate us being sort of that decentralized because the brand recognition is a huge thing. And so if you're someone out of a basin, you know, call it the Permian, when they're used to using someone for so long, and then all of a sudden company comes in, like just clears them out. And all of a sudden they have, they implement all their processes and systems and logos. It's a lot of times it can be a bit much for customers if they're not used to it. And so I look at it from that standpoint. And again, it's worked well for us, but the way you answered, I'm sure you've had to answer that for a long time. Yeah, I mean, if we had entered the markets organically, I don't know if we would have done the same thing, but sure. we bought companies that had reputations, right? Yeah. And so we did our best not to deter those or chase them off because initially that can happen too. If someone sees an acquisition happen, they assume things are going to change mm-hmm. without giving it a yeah. honest chance. So we tried to be as quiet about all that as we could. And we've looked at actually PureCam as a corporate name when we changed to CES Energy Solutions, PureChem was the choice mm. that everybody had as potentially the corporate name for everybody. Interesting. And we discussed that at length with all the groups. And, you know, in the end, we couldn't use it because there were some trademarks on it in the U.S. I think Baker or somebody has some trademarks on the name. Uh, so we okay. couldn't have used that one. But through all that discussion, we just ended up settling on CES Energy Solutions and we'll keep going decentralized. Nice. Well, selfishly, I can really appreciate how we still have part of the Maple Leaf in the logo. Yes. Because <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people are like, what is this? And you explain it. Some people like, and again, it's embarrassing to say, but some people, is that a peacock tail? And, you know, I've had all kinds of people. It's like, no, it's Maple Leaf. It's where it all started. Yeah. Again, it's fascinating, but we're coming up on the hour now. So I want to respect your time. I know you're on crunch, but a couple of questions to kind of so lighten things up more on the personal side. You kind of mentioned it earlier, but I'm curious. I had on here, what book are you currently reading? You said you don't read much, which I'm sure you do read, maybe not books. You probably read a lot of other things, but what are you listening to or what's kind of got you when you have time to unplug or traveling? What are you reading? What are you listening to? I mean, for the most part, Rogan podcasts, I spend a lot of time listening to those when I'm flying. Okay, nice. A few TV series, you know, the suits kind of stuff. And I was at the dinner the other night when I got a book that Harold Hamm recently wrote. So I do intend on reading that. I'll probably download the digital and read it that way. I got the signed book though as a memento. Very cool. Yeah. Was he there? Yeah, he came and did a speech. Wow. Very cool. For about a half an hour. He's an interesting guy. That's why I'm looking forward to reading the book. I mean, he talks about the history of energy in North America and how the industries frowned on now and how insulting that is for all we've done for the American people and the Canadian people. Well, what I find fascinating is what he did is take company back private. He explained it over a podcast, and I think it was the Veritin podcast with some guys that come from here in Houston. But again, I thought that was quite fascinating, and I just wonder if if that's going to be a domino effect for a lot of public EMPs. But anyway, another conversation for another day. So if you weren't in oil and gas, like what would you be doing right now? Would you be back, you know, picking cherries or growing apple trees? What would that look like? You know, I have no idea how life wouldn't have turned out if it hadn't, you know, I had no direction at that time. So I'm potentially... Whatever that first job was, if I had been passionate about it, I would have gone in that industry. Or maybe I would have even gone back to school because I promised my parents I would go and then I worked that first winter rather than... I went to Alberta to visit friends is what I told them. Okay. And I just never came home. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I had to do some explaining, but I promised them I'd go the next year and then never did that. So who knows if I had... 
I think it's just be about being passionate. I was just fortunate enough. The first dumb idea I had turned into something I was passionate about and it was able right. to propel me through my career. Nice. Well, I'll reframe the question then. So if, hypothetically speaking, if things got so good, someone bought, you got to ride into the sunset, what would you spend your time doing? I mean, what hobbies or things would you get into that have like piqued your interest, but obviously being so busy, you maybe don't have time. I mean, I think about that all the time because, you know, retirement's not that far away. I'm probably 10 years kind of max. I've started thinking about it. I don't know. I mean, I like golfing. I like playing hockey. We skied a lot as a family, like downhill ski. We had a lake place. So we spent a lot of time in boats and surfing and all that like all that stuff, don't like it enough to do it full time. Mm. So I don't have a passion outside of the business that we're in and the people that I work with. I mean, I love not just our employees, but our customers. I've got customers that I've had since we started the company that have been with me and our families have grown up together and we spent time together. And that's the scariest part of leaving the industry for me is when you stop working with people, everybody's busy, everyone's got their own life. You're definitely going to lose touch over time, maybe not completely, but to the extent. So I think if we got bought in the next year, which I think there's a 0% chance of that happening. But sure. if something happened or if I got fired, hopefully there's a 0% chance of that <laughs> happening too. But if I ended up without a job in the next year or two, I would definitely try and get back into the industry with a different company and do the same thing. I mean, I love the business side of our business and of the industry. And maybe yeah. maybe I could take that experience if an opportunity came along and use that experience in a different industry. But I think business is business. I think customers yeah. are customers and numbers are numbers, right? Like it's pretty, to me, it's all... I'm not a sophisticated financial guy, but I understand numbers. I've always been really good with numbers and it's pretty easy to figure out how to make money. I look at some of the companies, I don't want to speak to anyone, but you look at some companies that haven't made it and I think there's been solutions that could have been there if they could have just seen them. Wow. Interesting. So, I mean, you're a passionate guy. Could you ever see yourself getting into politics? I don't think so. I'd be a bad politician, (laughs) I think. I'm a little honest and fairly passionate. I mean, I try and withhold political stuff, but I mean, I have my views and I'd like to support somebody in politics. I'm not a very good public speaker. And, you know, I've been accused of being snooty and not talking to people. And I've always explained that when I hear about it after, like, I'm a pretty shy guy and I'm not out there at the front of the pack trying to get everybody to look at me, look at me. I mean, not that that's what Tom's personality was, but Tom was much more comfortable in that role. Yeah. And so when we went public, I was the president of Impact. It was his turn to be the higher title when we went public. So he took the CEO role. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't really even understand corporate structure at that time. I understood that it was higher than CEO, but I didn't realize how much that meant, you know, the speeches, the talking in front of groups. And it turns out he was the right guy for that job because he was very comfortable in that role. He loved it. He had a passion for it. Right. For me, you know, I still get nervous as heck when I have to go up and talk in front of people. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you do a hell of a job. I mean, you definitely fool most people. So for like, say, mud engineers or people who've never had a chance to meet you besides CEO of the company, I mean, how would you describe yourself at the core? Like you said, you're kind of shy, but like, what do you value most? Oh, it's family. I think there's no question about that. We have five kids, my wife and I. We've been very fortunate. We've had no serious health problems in our direct family or even our distant family for the most part. Definitely none of the young age on anyone. So we've been very, very lucky with our kids. Everything's around family and friends, right? Like it's everything we do and that's how I spend my time and that's how I value myself. So it takes a lot of my focus. Yeah, no. and None of that's easy, right? Yeah, no balancing it all and especially with what you're doing and traveling and how busy things are. But I think most people can really identify with that and that's why I wanted to close out with that. And so been a fascinating conversation on behalf of, you know, my family and I speaking about family, we appreciate the opportunity. I mean, you gambled on me to come down here in the U S and I'm still here, thankfully. And so, yeah, on behalf of 
AES and the rest of the crew here. Matt can certainly speak, but yeah, we thank you and the leadership team for everything that you guys have done and continue to do it. Yeah, I couldn't see it any other way. Well, thanks for having me on today, guys. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. And for the listeners out there, really appreciate this. If you could share this, write a review. And if you have any mud engineers or any folks that listen to podcasting, make sure you send this to them. I think they would really value this. You can check us out on LinkedIn. We've got a great platform on there, a lot of content, a lot of technical content that gets put out, a lot of information. We've got our YouTube channel with the tech tips. So for those who are learn better visually, Matt and his team have done a great job of putting a bunch of videos on there to learn. And if you have any questions, you don't want to reach out to us on LinkedIn, you can hit us up at the flow podcast at aesfluids.com and with that being said thanks listeners be safe until next time see ya take care thanks for listening please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the flow line and remember may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees the program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice copyright aes drilling fluids